a favorite love song favorite song about love there's no there's no shortage of of songs about love right no shortage love is a many splendored thing there all you need is love i will always love you that's a reason to avoid the malls because you hear that song over and over and over and over again. And if you used to like Whitney Houston, that song just kind of turns you totally against her. Well, we've been talking about love for two months now, right? In this series, Love Does. And uh, we've been exploring love in kind of two ways. We've been talking about God's love for us. And also focusing on how we can learn to better love each other. We spent a little time early on, briefly, in John chapter 13... Where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you do what? Love one another. As I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Because you love one another. We spent some time also in 1 John chapter 4, where the Apostle John, who by the way, his nickname is the Apostle of Love, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves God, God is love. And then we kind of migrated from there to 1 Corinthians 13, which is called the love chapter. And there we discovered and reminded ourselves that the Apostle Paul says that even if you had the capacity and ability to speak in, a, in an angelic language... If you don't have love, you got nothing. And he says, even if you gave away all of your possession, all of your money, all of your houses, everything you own to help the poor, if you don't have love, it means nothing. And he builds on that and he says, even if you give your body to be burned in martyrdom, if you don't have love, it's nothing. Then the Apostle Paul gives us that great description of love. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. I suggested to you two or three weeks ago that that's kind of, in my mind, the umbrella under which all those other uh, verses fall. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not rude. It's not arrogant. doesn't seek its own way. doesn't get angry. Pastor Oscar reminded us of that last week. And so we've been on this journey talking about love, and this is going to be the final, final message in that series. I'm frequently asked what I'm going to preach on on Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes that happens during the week with people I'm with. Uh, sometimes it happens just a few minutes before the service when we're gathered for prayer. I didn't get asked that question this morning, um, but I frequently am. And because I like to mess with people, I always answer that question the same way. I don't know. You got any ideas? Well, I've got ideas this morning. Someone has said that the most difficult thing that God asks us to do is to... Now, what just jumped into your mind? What's the most difficult thing to forgive others? And so... When people ask me that question this week, what am I going to preach on? I've said, well, it's Father's Day, one. We're in a series on um, love, and I want to preach a message about uh, forgiveness. So where could I find in my Bible a passage of Scripture that talks about a father who loves and forgives? And every single person that I ask that of gave me the same answer. Well, I don't, I don't call that chapter the prodigal son. You're going to find out why in the next half hour. But yeah, and that story of what we often call the prodigal son is found in your Bible in the book of Luke, chapter 15. And those are the people who looked ahead in the bulletin and knew where I was going. And so this morning, we want to take a look at this story, oftentimes known as the story of the prodigal son. And so I want to read this story for you, and uh, then we'll take a look at it. Feeling footloose and frisky, a fair-brained fellow forced his father to fork over his farthings. Fast he flew to foreign fields and frittered his family's fortune, feasting fabulously with floozies and faithless friends. Flooded with flattery, he financed a full-fledged fling of funny foam and fast food. Fleeced by his fellows in folly, facing famine and feeling faintly fuzzy, he found himself a feed flinger in a filthy foreign farmyard. Feeling frail and fairly famished, he fain would have filled his frame with foraged food from the fodder fragments. Fooey, he figured. My father's flunkies fare far fancier. The frazzled fugitive fumed feverishly. Facing the facts... Finally, frustrated from failure and filled with foreboding, but following his feelings, he fled from the filthy foreign farmyard. Far away, the father focused on the fretful familiar form in the field and flew to him and fondly flung his forearms around the fatigued fugitive. Falling at his father's feet, the fugitive floundered forlornly. Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. Finally, the faithful father, forbidding and forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. Faithfully, the father's firstborn was in a fertile field fixing fences while father and fugitive were feeling festive. 
The foreman felt fantastic as he flashed the fortunate news of a familiar family face that had forsaken fatal foolishness. Forty-four feet from the farmhouse, the firstborn found a farmhand fixing a fatling. Frowning and finding fault, he found father and fumed. Floozies and foam from frittered family funds, and you fix a feast following the fugitive's falderall? The firstborn's fury flashed, but fussing was futile. The frugal firstborn felt it was fitting to feel favored for his faithfulness and fidelity to family, father and farm. In foolhardy fashion, he faulted the father for failing to furnish a fatling and feast for his friends. His folly was not in feeling fit for feast and fatling for friends. Rather, his flaw was in feeling about the fairness of the festival for the found fugitive. His fundamental fallacy was a fixation on favoritism, not forgiveness. Any focus on feeling favored will fester in friction until force the faded facade to fall. Frankly, the father felt the frigid firstborn's frugality of forgiveness was formidable and frightful. But the father's former faithful fortitude and fearless forbearance to forgive both fugitive and firstborn flourishes. The far-sighted father figured, such fidelity is fine, but what forbids, what forbids fervent festivity for the fugitive has been found? Unfurl the flags and finery. Let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failure is forgotten. Folly is forsaken. Forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortune. That's the story. Uh, who said, could I repeat that? That was tough enough the first time. I, the whole time I was reading that, though, as I was thinking about reading that for you this morning, I thought, you know, we have this thing in our culture about the F word, and here's a whole sheet full of F words, so we've got to be careful. So I want you to come with me this morning to Luke chapter 15, and you're familiar, I trust, with this story, the story of, I don't, wanna, I don't like to call this the story of the prodigal son. I like to call this the story of the forgiving father. And so since it's Father's Day, I, I want that to be our focus. But I want you to come with me to Luke chapter 15. And what I want to do is I want to first talk about the setting for this story. This story does not take place in a vacuum. This isn't like you sitting down at 8.30 at night with your 7-year-old and reading a bedtime story and just randomly picking a story to tell. Jesus has a purpose and a plan for this story, right? And so the setting in which it takes place is so very important. After that, I want to share with you a little bit of what I call the setup for the story. Because there's two short little stories before this story that set up his listeners for the story. So we're going to talk about the setting, we're going to talk about the setup for the story, and then we're going to talk about the story itself. And so as you look at your Bible and open your Bible together in the first three verses of Luke chapter 15, we find the setting for this story. Now, all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable. And so the setting for the story is what? Jesus being criticized by the scribes and the Pharisees because he was hanging out with sinners. 
the undesirables in the culture. Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jewish men employed by Rome to get taxes from the Jewish people. And the tax collectors typically used this to their advantage to put money where? Their pockets. And so tax collectors were hated, despised. They were the lowest of the low. You want nothing to do with tax collectors. And then there's this all-purpose word, tax collectors and sinners. To the Pharisees, to a good religious person like a Pharisee and a scribe, the, the sinners are the undesirables in the culture. They're the people that are crippled because that's evidence that they're not in God's favor. The sinners are, some are public sinners like prostitutes. And Jesus is hanging out with these people and the Pharisees and the scribes are a little upset about it. Why are they upset about it? Because it's something they would never do. And they didn't think Jesus should do it either. And so they're grumbling and complaining and it's out of this complaint that Jesus tells his story. Now really to understand the story of the forgiving father with his two prodigal sons, you need to remember who these Pharisees are. Because the Pharisees are the, the spiritual elite in Israel. The Pharisees, many of which would have formed the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Israel. These are the spiritual elite. These are the ones who scrupulously held to the Scriptures, looking to obey every word, every piece. Every, you know, that was their ambition. And their sense of things was, and their perfect world was, if you kept all the rules, if you followed all the laws of which they had hundreds, right? If you did that, the result was you had what? God's favor. That's the word, favor. That's an F word that was in our story. You have God's favor. And so it's into this context, into this setting, where the Pharisees, who have no love, no compassion, no care, no concern for these undesirables. It's into that setting that Jesus tells this story. And it's because of that setting this story has meaning. And so Jesus then sets up the story by telling two short little parables, stories. And so you're familiar, of course, the first one. He says in verse 4, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he brings it, lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. <clears throat> Rejoice with me, he says, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, there's that key word, sinner, who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need to repent. 
Now, there's a couple of things that I find fascinating. The first thing is, Jesus doesn't say, once upon a time there was a shepherd. He doesn't start the story that way. He says, which of you, and who's he talking to? Pharisees. Which of you? So now he's putting the Pharisees into this story, and the story is about a shepherd. Thank you. And where were shepherds on the social strata in Israel in the first century? So the shepherds were despised and hated. They smelled like sheep. That was the first thing that was really bad. But because sheep need a shepherd to take them to where the food is, they can't forage and find food on their own. Shepherds moved the sheep from place to place finding food and water. And as the shepherds traveled from place to place finding food and water, they had a tendency to have sticky fingers and pick up things that weren't theirs. I don't think they were pushing grocery carts like the homeless today, but it's kind of a similar scene where they just moved around and picked up anything that was not nailed down and being guarded. And so shepherds were regarded as thieves. Shepherds were unreliable. They were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were the lowest of the low. (laughs) So here's these Pharisees who look down and have no care, compassion, and love for the undesirables. And Jesus says to them, Oh, which of you, if you lost the sheep? I kind of find that funny. Then he tells the second story. And the second story begins in verse 8. Or, what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp and keep the house and search carefully until she sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it and when she's found it she calls together her friends and and neighbors saying rejoice with me i have found the coin which i lost in the same way i tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over the one there's our word again sinner who repents by the way How did Pharisees regard women in the first century? They weren't this low, but they were... The Pharisees had a prayer that they prayed. I don't know that it was every morning. But they had a prayer that they prayed regularly. And it began this way. Lord, thank you for not making me a woman. And so, again, Jesus... In these two little setup stories, he talks about a shepherd, hated and despised. And then he talks about a woman. A woman who is poor. And she loses this coin. And so Jesus uses these two stories to set up the story of the lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. He sets up the story. And now he's ready to tell it. By the way... These two little stories have one thing in common. Do you notice what it is? Lost. But the thing that caught my eye this time that I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to, guess what takes place in heaven every time a sinner comes to embrace the Savior? There's what? Happiness and joy? Can we use the word party? Why not? Thank you, Amy. Thank you. 
So, when, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, there's a party in heaven. There's singing. There's dancing. There's happiness. There's joy. All of that that you said. And uh, so, <laughs> so Jesus has now set up the story. And these Pharisees are probably already been offended at least twice <laughs> with the story of the shepherd and the woman. And then he begins his third story. In verse 11, he simply says, A certain man had two sons. Bingo! Now we're talking good stuff. No more undesirables. No more low social status. We're talking a man with two boys. He is favored by God. Why? He not only has a son, he has two of them. And so everything changes now. A certain man had two sons. The Pharisees are now paying attention. And so, as you well know, there's three players in our story. We have the father, and we have two brothers, the two sons. One's younger, one's older, obviously, right? And so each of these plays a role in this story. So the younger son as the story unfolds, comes to his father. And verse 12 says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he, the father, divided his wealth between them. Anything about the words in quotes that the son spoke to his father that catch your eye or your ear? Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. What kind of a sentence is that? It does not say, Father, please, thank you, Tom, please, please, would you be willing to give to me my share of the... It doesn't say that. What does he do? He demands. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. He demands that dad divide the inheritance. Any of you ever gone to your father and asked for something really significant? I remember well, 1976. We decided, we've been married for almost six years, and we wanted to buy a house. But in order to buy a house, you need... Money, you need to make a down payment. So I thought, I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to ask my dad to help us with a down payment. <laughs> and so, nervous, shaking, scared, my dad was very frugal. Um, one would even say he was cheap. One would even say when he walked, he... Squeak. You got all the, you got all this all the symbolism. And so I remember well going to my folks' house in Long Beach, sitting down with my dad, and telling him that Andrew and I wanted to buy a house and we needed help with down payment. Would he be able to help us? My dad need, didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He told me a story, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, I remember when we bought our first house." 
And I worried every month where our $33 a month house payment was going to come from. I didn't get a loan. But here's this son. He comes to his dad. He demands an inheritance. Now, it's important to understand this Jewish culture. Because the inheritance passed from father to son when? At death. And so the son is saying to his dad, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And basically what he's telling his dad is what? I'd like you to be dead now. And so imagine living in a tiny first century village of a couple dozen families all in close proximity. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's familiar with everybody's doings and undoings and everything else. And this son does this shameful, dishonoring, disrespectful thing to his dad. I want my inheritance and I want it now. In the Jewish culture, the oldest son was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. So when there's only two children, the youngest son gets one-third. Thank you for doing the math for me. I appreciate it. And the older son gets two-thirds. And notice what the passage says. It says the son said, Dad, give me my stuff. And then it says, and he divided his wealth between them. That suggests to me that the older son... Received his share then too, right? And so, here's this father who, as I read the story, is a man of some means, some wealth. That usually implies some kind of position and status in the community. And here's his son who disrespects him, dishonors him, and brings shame by demanding his inheritance. But it gets worse. Because dad gives him his inheritance. Now some, some of this I'm maybe kind of reading in, under, trying to research a little bit of the culture and understand what's going on in Jesus' story. Because the Pharisees fully understand their culture in that day, right? The Pharisees totally understood the backdrop and what's not being said in this story. And we need to understand what's not being said. Because... His inheritance probably would have included monies, right? But what else would be in the family estate of a man of means? Property, land, and probably cattle, flocks, whatever. How important was land to a first century Jew? Now, if you were with me last Tuesday night with our Ironmen when we met to study the book of Joshua... And we studied about Joshua partitioning the land and giving the land to each of the tribes and each of the clans and each of the families. This land that this man had would have been passed down for generations from the time it was originally apportioned by Joshua. So how important is this land? Extremely important. And so the son wants ready cash because he's ready to go have a fling and have fun. So what's he going to do with that land? He's going to sell it. More shame. More shame heaped on dad. You, you don't sell the family land. 
This has been in our family for generations. You, you don't sell this. To complicate it further, none of those Jewish neighbors in the community, none of them culturally would have been willing to purchase that land. So where would he find a buyer for this land if Jewish friends and neighbors wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole? Where would he find a buyer? A non-Jew, a Gentile. So there's more shame heaped on dad because now he's selling the land to a non-Jew. How desperate is the son to sell the land? Incredibly desperate. And so if you're a smart businessman and you're buying something from a dude that's incredibly desperate to get rid of it, what happens to the value and the price? So I see the son selling everything he has. Garage sale prices, right? And he fills his pockets with all this money, his backpack, I don't know, and he takes off. Talk about shame and dishonoring your father. Incredible shame. Incredible dishonor. And the story says, not many days later, sold it all pretty quick. The younger son, I'm in verse 13 if I lost you. Youngest son gathered everything together and went out on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. (laughs) So he goes to what the Bible calls a distant country. Some have suggested that the word distant country might have implied to a Jewish audience of that day not necessarily geographically distance, but most likely, and even maybe more likely, moral distance. You know, if someone lived in Norwalk in 2022, and they had possessions that they could sell and turn into liquid cash, and their goal was to go have a bombing good time, and they're going to live free, they're going to do whatever they want, They're going to be with whoever they want. They're going to head out and they're going to go to Las Vegas. Thank you. You know, I find it fascinating. I've been involved in ministry with international students for a number of years. And these students come to our country from all over the world. And they all have ambition to go to one city. Las Vegas. Go figure. So this young man is looking for the Las Vegas of his day. And as I read the story and I think of geography, I think, well, you know, just the other side of the Sea of Galilee over there is a Greek, back up one word, a hedonistic Greek culture called the Decapolis. Decapolis, Decapolis, ten cities. And that's the Las Vegas of the first century. That's where you have uh, immorality, you have pagan uh, worship, you have idolatry, you have temple prostitutes. you got all kinds of stuff. And so he gathers up all this stuff, and he's taken off. And the scripture says, he squandered his estate with loose living. You know, my experience doesn't even begin to parallel this, but I remember I was 18, 
graduated from high school, and I had a partial scholarship to this little Christian college in Indiana, 2,400 miles away from my parents. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be 2,400 miles away from my parents. I have freedom. I can do with whatever. I can do whatever I want, go where I want. Yeah, well, you'd never been to Grace College before if you thought that. Um, <clears throat> but that was kind of my sense of things. This was freedom, right? And so I kind of identify a little bit with this, this younger brother. He's got freedom. He's going to have fun. He's got a pocket full of money. Well, I had freedom and wanted fun. What I lacked when I went to Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana, was I lacked money. But he had a pocket full. He had a backpack full of money. And so he squanders it all in loose living. <laughs> and Jesus just makes it progressively a little more complicated, a little worse. Now, verse 14 says, When he had spent everything, what does everything suggest to you? Everything. He is what we would call dead broke. Nothing. So first, all his money's gone. And of course, what happens when you've been buying friends with your money for all these weeks or months? What happens? Friends are gone. No more money. No more parties. I'm out of here. And so he's all alone. He has no money. Oh, and Jesus makes it even get worse. <laughs> he says, and a severe famine occurred in the country. Notice Jesus didn't say a famine occurred. He said, what occurred? Severe famine. <laughs> See, Jesus is the master storyteller. Nobody can compare to Jesus. And so he just keeps making it progressively worse and worse. He squanders all his money. It's all gone. His friends are all gone. He's all alone. Now there's a famine. He's hungry. Can't buy food. Oh, it's a severe famine. So it's a severe famine. It affects everybody. So verse 15 says, He went down. He went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And so maybe I'm reading too much into this story. But it says he attached himself to a citizen. And it almost sounds to me like he forced this guy to give him a job. I mean, if there's a severe famine in the land, and things are tight, and you own a business or you have a farm, what are the odds that you want to hire someone else to work and someone else to pay and someone else to feed? Zero. And so he attaches himself to this guy in my mind, forcing him, give me a job. And so, of all the possible jobs that this man could have given to the younger son, what does he give him? Ah, go feed the pigs. Why do you suppose, out of all the possible jobs he could have given, he sent him out to feed the pigs? Because a good Jewish boy would never be associated with pigs. So if the citizen sent this boy out to feed the pigs, was he assuming, expecting, hoping that the guy would say, there's no way on the top side of God's green earth I'm going to go do that. 
I think that's what this guy was hoping, that the boy wouldn't go do that. But how desperate is he? Well, he's so desperate, the Scripture says, he is not only feeding the swine, he's, he's right there with him. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. No one was giving anything to him. Talk about being at the bottom. And isn't it oftentimes true when people get all the way to the bottom, they experience what this boy experienced? This boy's probably a man, by the way, not a 12-year-old. But when someone is at the bottom of the barrel, what do you pray will happen if it's your son, your daughter, your brother? What is your prayer? What is it, Steve? I pray he will come to his senses. And that's what the Scripture says. He's there with the pigs. And it says, verse 17, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up, go to my father. I'll say to him, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. That equals sinning against God. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. And so that's the role that the younger son has played. He has piled shame, dishonor, embarrassment, humiliation upon his dad. Everything he has done has shamed the family name. And he's headed home. Thinking to himself, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll offer to just be one of my dad's servants. I'm not worthy to be a son. Came to his senses... But now, we don't see the son coming home. By the way, the old saying is, when you go home, they have to let you in. But the scene shifts from watching the son coming back from Las Vegas home. Now the scene shifts. And now the father is front and center in the camera. Now what's the father doing? Was he busy, occupied with the, the business of the, the family farm and family activities? and all? You know, the implication to me, as Jesus tells the story, is the Father is waiting, hoping, praying, expecting that any moment his son might come over the horizon and come home. And as soon as he recognizes his son coming, do you recognize your kids, how they walk? Could you recognize your son or daughter walking if they were a couple hundred yards away? I find it kind of funny. Every once in a while I run into somebody out in public somewhere and they'll say to me, I knew that was you because I could see your walk anywhere. But dad saw his son coming and what did he do? What does the Scripture say he did? He ran. He ran to meet his son. 
waiting, anticipating, expecting, hoping, praying, and here he comes. And he ran. Dad was not wearing uh, shorts and tennis shoes. Dad wasn't even wearing Levi's and tennis shoes. What was Dad wearing? A robe, sandals. And so how did you run in a robe? You have to gather that robe up in your hands to free your legs to be able to run. You know, that would never dress his cross-country team in robes, right? Got those little shorts. So you you'd pull those robes up so that your legs were free to run. And uh, some Bible students suggest that oftentimes you'd have to pull the robe up far enough to be able to run that you'd kind of expose a little bit of your backside like a hospital gown. Father willing to shame himself to go welcome his son home? Maybe. By the way, in that first century Jewish culture, men of status, men of position, men of honor do not run. In fact, they do not walk to greet someone coming. They're a person of status, a person of importance. And they don't go to people. People come to them. But this dad sees his son coming. And he hikes up his robes and he takes off running and he leaps over the hedge and he's gone. To welcome his son home. Embraces his son. Kisses his son. And I'm backing up and I'm going, wait a minute. He embraces this guy and kisses this guy who just got up out of a fig pen to come home. So now dad embraces, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into this story, but I'm just trying to put myself back in that culture and say, so dad is now covered in this stuff. And he calls for a robe to be brought to cover his son's filth and shame. Puts a ring on his finger. Gets the fatted calf slaughtered and on the barbecue pit ready for dinner for a party, right? Well, what happens when sinners repent? What's that, Amy? A party. Yes, a party. And so, we just found out lost coin, lost sheep. Party time. They're found. And so now in Jesus' story, it's party time. The boys come home. He's been found. It's time to celebrate. We're having a party. What a father. Shamed, dishonored, humiliated, embarrassed. Even willing to shame himself by running with his robes hiked up. That's what a loving father does. Well, there's still our third player in the story. The older brother. The older brother, you need to understand in this culture, the whole thing of a, what's called a birthright uh, entitled him to a double portion. We've already talked about that. But the older son in a family in first century Judaism had responsibilities to fulfill as well. 
one of his responsibilities is to mediate any disagreements between his father and his siblings. So if you were, like me, the oldest son of a family of five, one of my responsibilities would have been, anytime there was any conflict between my father and my three brothers and my sister, I was obligated as the firstborn son to mediate, to intervene. Well, when the younger son came to dad and said, I want my stuff, what did the older son do? Nothing. Didn't say a word. In Jesus' story, the older son is silent. Huh. That may have some, that, that may have some implications that the Pharisees would have perceived about the relationship between the older son and the younger son. Or perhaps the relationship between the older son and dad. But now, brother comes home. Dad's excited. Dad's throwing a party. And how does his brother respond? Verse 28 says, He became angry and was not willing to go in. To go in where? To the party. I'm not going to no stinking party. That lousy brother of mine. He wasted all his money with prostitutes. Floozies. Thank you, Ron. Floozies. So how did, how did he know that his brother was hanging out with floozies? It was a good guess. Nothing in the story says that it's true. But if you knew what was going on over in Decapolis, <laughs> that'd be a good guess. But the oldest brother is ticked off to the max. I'm not going into that party. I've, I've been here. Well, let me read what it says instead of telling you. He says, look, verse 29, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet... You've never given me a kid. Never thrown me a party with my friends. So, now you have to be paying close attention. Who's the audience Jesus is speaking to? Pharisees. What is their stock in trade to gain favor with God? Commands. Keeping the commands. Keeping the rules. Doing all the rules. And so Jesus interjects into this story. The older brother says... I've stuck with it. I've been faithful. I've kept all your rules. You didn't throw me a party. <laughs> you didn't throw me a party. When that son of yours came, devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed a fatted calf. Don't you love the way Dad responds? This is how a loving father responds. Because both sons are prodigals. The one just left town. The other one hung around. And dad says, my child, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry. We had to rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead. He's begun to live. Was lost and has been found. 
in the culture of the first century world, a very normal and considered appropriate response to this son returning home would have been to cut him off formally and officially. They had, a, they had what they called a cutting off ceremony. They would take a clay pot and break it, representing the, the breaking of relationship. The older son would have been completely justified to get together all of his male cousins and kill his brother. That would have been expected in this culture because of what the son had done, the shame he brought on dad. Instead, dad's response is what? Party time. Let's celebrate. Son was Not only was the son lost, he says the son was dead and he's back. That's what a loving father does. Someone has said, as I mentioned before, sometimes it seems like the most difficult thing that God asks us to do is to forgive others. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Jesus had some pretty, pretty extensive things to say for us. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. But it's, some of the times we find it hard to forgive. And what really upsets me is the story ends here. And I want to know, so what happened next? What did the older son do? What did the younger son do? What did, it just stops. And I wonder, did the Pharisees get the message? Because Jesus told a story about three characters. And one of those characters he used to portray the Pharisees. Who was it? older brother. The one who lacks compassion. The one who lacks care. The one who will not forgive. Just like the Pharisees. And I want to know, did they get the point? (laughs) The story ends and it's over. So that's on my list of questions for when I get to heaven. (laughs) Jesus, will you finish telling the story? But oftentimes it's true We struggle to forgive. Someone offends us. There's some affront. There's something that's said. And we're hurt, maybe embarrassed. I think of my friend Mark, who used to attend church here. And someone said something jokingly. There were half a dozen of us guys around. Police siren going, police car going down the street with a siren. And someone says, Mark, they're coming after you. Have you ever had someone say that to you? I have. More than once. That's a common little joke. Hey, they're coming after you. Well, he took offense at that. And I I never could break through that. I remember like it was yesterday, standing in the driveway of my house in Laverne, previous home to where we live now, talking with my brother Rick. And someone had deeply hurt 
him and his family, deeply offended them, a great injustice. Talking to my brother about forgiveness, and all he could focus on was, I want justice. I want justice. I want justice. And I said, you know, you're going to look far and wide in your Bible to find justice as a theme. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that talks about forgiveness. And if I read my Bible correctly, if you want justice, <laughs> you know, you don't want justice. You want God's mercy, God's grace. Couldn't break through that. He passed away in 2011, as far as I know, never forgiving. I have another person in my life who has a track record of cutting people out of her life. Someone offends her, they say something, they do something, cut. No more communication, no more conversation, nothing. I'm going to have nothing to do with that person. And I can look back over... I don't know, last dozen to 15 years where people have been cut out. Cut her mother and stepfather out of her life for almost a year. No communication, no pictures of the grandkids, nothing. Grandma would send text messages, emails, phone calls, no response. And we were praying and praying and praying, and finally there's a little breakthrough. Maybe a big breakthrough. I'm praying that they're together this weekend for Father's Day. But holding grudges for days, weeks, months, years. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient. Love is kind, it's not rude, it's not arrogant, it's not self-serving, doesn't get angry, it doesn't take into account wrongs suffered, it doesn't keep score. Love does not do that. What does love do? Love forgives. Love forgives. Love doesn't hold grudges. Love doesn't nurture resentments. Love forgives. And I look at this story of this father, and I say, you know, there's stuff here I need to learn. I learn from this father in Jesus' story. Love is always ready to forgive, eager to forgive, anxious to forgive. The father in the story is waiting, hoping, anticipating the son will come home. Anxious to forgive. In my mind, as I'm reading that, I'm saying to myself, the father did not forgive his son when he came home. He forgave his son when? Long before that. He didn't wait for the son to show up. He didn't wait for the son to come and apologize. He didn't wait for the son to come and ask for forgiveness. What did he do? Forgave him. 
That's what a loving Heavenly Father does. Is that what He expects me to do? Is that what He expects you to do? I think so. Love is always ready to forgive. Love doesn't wait for an apology. And I, I love this fact. Love celebrates the opportunity to forgive. Love has a party. Love has a party. The angels in heaven rejoice and celebrate when one sinner comes. And so I read this story. It's not a story about a bad boy. It's really not a story about a prodigal son. It's not really a story about that. It's a story about a loving father. A loving father who cares, who's gracious and merciful. And I back up from this story and I ask myself, and this morning I ask you, who are you most like in this story? This morning, are you like the younger son who has distanced himself from his loving father? You've chosen to occupy yourself with the pleasures of this life, the hedonism of Las Vegas, uh, that whole part of the story, squandering what you have in pleasure rather than seeking to please your father. I've got great news for you if that's you this morning. Guess what? God's arms are wide open. Come home. Come home. Can you identify this morning with a loving father who forgives? A loving father who is anxious, eager, forgives before you ask. Does that describe how you relate to people? Do you keep grudges or do you forgive? Do you nurture resentment or do you forgive? Or are you kind of like that? That older brother. You've carried grudges against your brother maybe for a lot longer than before he left town. Nurture, unforgiving, uncaring, no compassion. Because I think for each one of us, there's something to identify with in this story. God calls you and me to forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. God says we're to forgive how? Just as He has forgiven us. How much has He forgiven you? How much has He forgiven me? Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, As those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, you also should forgive. And so the comparison is, just like God forgave you, you should forgive others. Just like this father in Jesus' story forgave his son, I believe he forgave both boys. But just like that, God wants you and me to forgive. Is that a tough order? Sometimes. Sometimes. And so this morning, if you find it difficult to forgive, there's an area for prayer. 
Ask God to help you learn to forgive. Look at Scripture that talks about forgiveness. Ask God to to help you forgive. Decide right now. Don't wait until the offense happens. Decide right now that if offense comes, if an affront comes, if something is said, you will forgive. Don't wait for them. Decide today. I will forgive. Always, without exception. Is that a tough call? Probably. So remind yourself of the need for God's forgiveness and how much He has forgiven you. I was reminded this week of how often Christians struggle to fully acknowledge the depth and reality of our sin that Jesus' death on the cross has redeemed us from. We resist that. This last week, one of the largest Christian denominations in our country met in conference. And as always happens at those conferences, uh, great hymns of the faith are sung, great worship contemporary choruses are sung. And as they gathered to sing, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. Well, they didn't sing it that way. They sang it at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the mistakes of my life rolled away. Jesus did not die on the cross for your mistakes. He died on the cross for our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, just like that younger son. Shame and dishonor. That's why Jesus died on the cross. I remember years ago, large church in Orange County, large church in Orange County, You could clearly see this church from a long distance away. And uh, the pastor of this church invited the choir at Biola University to come and sing in a worship service. And the pastor requested a list of the songs that the choir would be singing. And when the pastor received the list of songs that the the choir would be singing... I don't know how many songs, 10, 12. He requested that one word in one song be changed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Is that how John Newton wrote it? See, we don't like that word, wretch. We don't like the fact that Jesus died for a wretch like me. We want Jesus to die for someone like me. And when you fully comprehend and fully embrace the depth and significance and reality of Jesus' death on the cross for you and the forgiveness that God gives to us to redeem us, to ransom us, to make us His child, When you understand that it wasn't mistakes, it was sin. 
It wasn't someone, it was a wretch. You desperately needed a Savior. And Jesus went to the cross. When you understand the depth of that and the significance of the forgiveness you've received, Jesus says your response should be what? Forgive others the same way you've been forgiven. That's what love does. And so, Lord, we've taken a look at this story that you told. There's so, there's so much here that speaks into my heart, into my life. Reminders of times in my life when I've been a little bit like that younger son. I've been a little bit of a rebel. I've wanted to do things my way. I wanted freedom to come and go and do and be. And there's times in my life when I've been a lot like that older brother. Uncaring, uncompassionate, no mercy, no grace. And I too need to be a lot more like that father in our story. Caring, compassionate, loving, forgiving. And Lord, I pray that you would speak into each of our hearts even in this moment. I pray that you might even bring into some of our minds, maybe you've already done this, brought into our minds someone that we've needed to forgive. We've harbored a grudge. We've harbored resentment. Maybe we've nurtured that resentment, replaying it over and over in our minds. Lord, help us. It is difficult sometimes to forgive. Lord, we need your help. We need your help. Love forgives. You demonstrated that (laughs) while we were yet sinners. You died for the ungodly. And we're grateful for that. We celebrate that in this moment. In Jesus' name. Amen.